I'm in too much pain. Let's just let, yeah, let my body, you know, go to the ground. Well, yes, that's actually much easier than, than people think. So Andre, how many years did you work in palliative care? Uh, 10 years. And you worked in the ministerial ministry side of it. Is that correct? I was employed as a hospital chaplain by the Protestant Church of the Rhineland, first for two years, limited contract, and then an unlimited contract after that. And were most, if not all of the people you're working with day in, day out, terminally ill? Yes, I would say so. Uh, but unfortunately, only a few were actually aware of that. That's in the nature of cancer treatment. It's built on the concept of hope. Uh, the doctors want to give the patients hope, and the patients want to keep their own hope. And as long as there is some sort of credible treatment happening, like radiation therapy, chemotherapy, and newer forms like in interventional radiology, uh, where they bring in microwaves to, to basically boil the laser, um, as long as these things keep happening, it's totally fine. But many people are actually already considered palliative in the files, in the records, and um, you know, in terms of how the hospital communicates with their health insurance, but they themselves are unaware of it or don't want to really know. And your role as a chaplain in, that, in those conditions, did it differ from, I assume it differed from being a chaplain in, in a normal hospital where you have people coming in and out and many of them recovering to full health? What, how, did that, how was that role different, and what was your role in that kind of spiritual element? Well, I mean, I did both. Uh, once a week, I would be at the university hospital, and I would week do weekend call-out duties for all the Bonn hospitals. And in fact, I did the nighttime duty for the university hospital as well for that time, yeah, because I was the only person young and healthy enough to do it. And uh, that was remunerated separately. So, uh, for example, in the university hospital, I would look after the cardiology ward for three years. Then for six years, I was on the um, orthopedics ward. Yeah. And all the while doing, doing, being the main responsible chaplain at this smaller clinic that was um, focused just on palliative care, radiation, um, radiotherapy, and interventional radiology. Yeah. To kind of hone in on the palliative care side of it, I wonder how it was for you to weekly be around people that you knew were on death's door, to put it frankly. Does that mess with your, not necessarily mess, but was that a difficult thing to be around or did that, how was that? 
Well, you'd be surprised to hear that the actual death thing was the easiest and the neatest part to deal with. There is an incredible, yes, there is an incredible sense of peace in a room when somebody has died. Of course, people are crying, but you can just say, I can not describe the feeling of peace. And that has changed my view because as a child, I was very afraid of dead corpses. Um, that has completely changed through my work. Also, one should say in a palliative care setting, there's like beautiful rooms, a kitchen for the patients and the relatives, like lounges, etc. I mean, you're lucky if you die in a palliative care ward, that I can tell you, because I've looked after people dying in ICU and other settings that were not so nice, you know, connected to tubes. Uh, honestly, the palliative care is the least, the least painful ones in terms of the surroundings that you have. And when it comes to the peace when people would die, was that because of the pain that people were in and the difficulty of their treatment? Or is that just in, in a broader comment about how at the end of life it's, it's peaceful? Yeah, no, no bleeping machines, no struggling, no faces distorted by pain. That that sort of peace and the knowledge that the journey had come to an end, yeah. and then perhaps say a prayer over over the body with the relatives present. Sometimes nobody could come. There are some families where the children do not come to say goodbye to their parents. Yeah, I've seen all sorts of things. <laughs> when people would die, and you people that you had regular contact with, was that something that would stick with you throughout the day, or was that something that became so routine? I mean, not that became routine, and you were able to just you know was part of your job, and you were able to disconnect from it whenever you you left work, or was that kind of work? Did that stick with you? That's a very good question, Matt. Sometimes it did, and sometimes it didn't. It depended very much on the circumstances. Let me take uh, some examples. I remember a gentleman of Polish origin with whom I created a very, very close bond. I made food for him, and you know his family liked me. And we got really, really close. And in the end, uh, he actually, usually patients wait for the family's members to come so that they can let go and die. And this guy actually waited for me to come. And the, he died the moment I put my hand on him and gave him a blessing. Yeah, That's a sort of an extreme case with a personal connection. Yeah. yeah. On the other hand, being called to the university hospital at 2, 3 o'clock in the morning you meet somebody for the first time, they're usually already lost conscience, you deal with the relatives, you, you do your thing, you say your prayer and your blessing. And uh, after that, uh, you leave again. And it's almost like it didn't happen, except when it were children, small children, newborns that got emergency baptized. And, you know, the doctors, the nurses, the parents, everyone is crying, you are crying as well. And uh, 
that is something that sticks a little bit longer with you. Or seeing a young person suffocate very slowly uh, from a particularly bad heart condition. I once had that where it was an extreme case. Those sort of things stick with you. Or I remember on the palliative care ward, um, a young man who was exactly my age and who was also friend with another friend from uni um, at the time. And uh, that, that, of course, that when somebody that connected your with own you. age, that, yes, of course. And sometimes you see uh, one thing that really pushed me over the edge at the end and also led to me thinking I need to do something different was actually the husband of a patient that had been with us for years again and again and was unaware he had kidney problems. And he was such a, a, a dear soul. Yeah, it wouldn't hurt to fly and a very simple man, but but very, very kind. And then he died within a short period of time, leaving that very, very badly um, handicapped um, woman behind his wife. And, and that really, really kind of that that was the drop uh, made the you know thing flow over yeah for me in 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 a certain sense but it's something that comes on slowly at the beginning you think ah oh, no it's no problem i can deal with this so through the years you felt it build up the emotional and psychological toll of working in those environments yeah yeah after because i'm a very uh empathic person and um and sensitive and and that helped me also gauge patients you know can you be like funny make a joke with them or is it more serious you you really need to have that feedback. because i've seen many colleagues like uh really step into it with 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 sort of approaches that i thought like my gosh why are you doing this job yeah um don't want to badmouth anyone, but that's that's how I sometimes felt. But, um, yeah, where your empathetic manner and and disposition helped in those circumstances, but also then allowed you to take on maybe more of a psychological toll on, or took more of a psychological toll on you yeah, than it might have yeah. on others. Yeah, the, uh, I'm not so sure because uh, most of my colleagues have very bad burnout s- symptoms but were in hospital chaplaincy for so long. I was the youngest for, for many, many years. I was by far the youngest in the whole chaplaincy team, including the Catholic one. Um, and uh, I've seen burnout syndromes with most of my colleagues, but they're too old to go back into a parish and work as parish priests or, or pastors. And they were stuck with that and they were just... Um, uh, tumbling from one burnout into the next and that was also a kind of a warning for me yeah not to get stuck in that position or not stuck but were you going to commit to that long term yeah because i had already been doing it for 10 years and the question was i'm like at the time i was like 43 and uh the question posed itself for me are you going to continue this until you're 67 or soon probably they're going to increase the uh, retirement age to 70. I mean, I had uh, an unlimited position. It would have been impossible, almost impossible for the church to sack me. Yeah? Um, but I, I just was like, no, I, 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 you know, it's either now or never. Yeah. Yeah. And you were working as a Lutheran chaplain, is that correct? Well, for it's a, uh, the, the Protestant church in the Rhineland is a united, you know, um, 
Lutheran Reformed Church. There was a, a union dictated by the King of Prussia at the time when it was still part of Prussia. So, yeah, yeah. And I'm kind of I'm curious what people what people sought in your in the chaplain when they know that their situation is dire. As you mentioned earlier, they maybe were given, not necessarily given, but held on to some amount of hope, but I think they still knew that they were probably on a closer path towards towards death than than many others assume. Um and yeah, what what those people sought in in spiritual care as well as were there people that rejected it altogether? Of course, sometimes people would just send me out back out the door yeah uh that was relatively rare but it happened certainly on a weekly basis but i did have a trick you see i had um a box a metal box full of miniature swiss chocolates with me and i would always open that box when i entered a room because the psychology yeah psychological approach of a patient lying in a room changes the question from um, kind of switches immediately from what this guy, what does this guy want to oh he's bringing something yeah mm-hmm. and I yeah that that's that's basically the the sort of I didn't realize that until later I reflected on that so yeah that's a sort of psychological switch that you flick and it's hard to turn down it. Swiss chocolate. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I was I was working with dirty tricks, basically. You yeah, that's chocolate, what you, chocolatey tricks. Yeah, that's what you got to do. Uh, yeah, well, you got to do what you got to do, as you always so famously say. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, that, yeah, but uh, there was one instance I can say where where somebody where I had a very innocent conversation with a person. I was sent there by the nurses. They felt he was not well and it could turn bad. And I went there. We didn't talk about death at all, um, but we had a, a very sort of general philosophical conversation. And the next day when I came back, um, I found the wife there and uh, he was dead. And then I asked, you know, do you want me to say a prayer? And she said, yes, yes, you can do that. But, um, you know, I, you have to know my, my, my husband called me yesterday after you had left him um or left the room and said please come immediately the chaplain's been here that probably means that i'm gonna die oh wow and so for for many weeks i carried that with me and i thought you you literally killed that man you know just by going there uh, you know took away all his hope and then i went to the supervisor with it we you have like these psychological supervisors you have to go to regularly and he ten, then told me, it's like, well, had you not been there, he probably would have died anyway. Yeah? And maybe that gave him a, some sort of peace in his own oh, mind. No, that, that, that was probably the only reason he still saw his wife, because that in him insult this uh, sort of um, uh, alertness and you know, sense of urgency. And otherwise, that wife would not have come back because she's already been there that day. And they wouldn't have been able to say goodbye. So that put a completely different spin on it. Yeah. And one question. So there's this famous phrase by usually used by maybe a pastor that says there's no atheists in a foxhole. 
this idea that the foxhole of um, uh, war, that nobody doesn't believe in God if they're facing, you know, imminent death. Would you say a lot of people in that palliative care ward were anticipating some sort of life after death? Was that even a struggle for most people or was it, yeah, was, was it a struggle for most people? And then on the other side, was it just more of a day-to-day care kind of thing? Did you see a lot of any of those questions for you as a chaplain or wrestling with those questions? Well, yes, I once had a young lady patient, 40 years old, who had been socialized as an atheist in the former German Democratic Republic. And I didn't know that. Yeah. And the consultant doctor responsible for that ward in a prior meeting had told me, please go to her. We just gave her very, very bad news that her whole body is metastasized with cancer. And when I came in, she was shaking, you know, then I opened my chocolate tin and she took one and put it on her bedside table. And, and then uh, I was like, can I, you know, offer you a talk or something? And then she, you know, without saying it, you know, she moved her head to and fro, like as if she was in doubt. And I said, um, yeah, or say a prayer. And, you know, she was hesitant. And I said, well, don't worry, I'll, I'll come back another time. Still, all, all the while not aware that she was um, raised as an atheist. And then as I was already by the door, she called me back and said, I oh, actually do pray with me. And I did pray with her, holding her hands. And uh, after that, she wasn't shaking anymore. And she called me back many times. And she um, asked me to um, christen her, uh, which I did after two weeks. Uh, I christened her. And um, so she became a Christian. But that was an exception. In most cases, people have already made up their mind. And when you have made up your mind about things, uh, your worldview, it's difficult to change it and then, you know, believe or disbelieve at the last minute. Yeah, It's usually you, you make your bed the way you lie in your deathbed long before that happens. Yeah. I think Christopher Hitchens famously said that if there were some stories about him converting at the end of his life, they wouldn't be true and it would just be some sort of chemical imbalance or something of that nature. Uh, in his case, that would indeed have astonished me and even disappointed me, to be honest, because he wasn't just an atheist, he was an anti-theist. And I've had people like that, and I've had wonderful conversation with people like that. And in fact, the father of that lady I just mentioned, he, he remained an atheist. He was also brought up as an atheist in the communist east of Germany. And But he had a beautiful atheist spirituality, something I hadn't encountered before he would say things like well we don't know what nature still holds in store and kind of secrets about how life or what form it may continue in in a sort of natural sense without there being a god for uh, all these things to happen um and that i found very interesting and impressed me very much and may also be in line with some spiritual traditions, even within Christianity, that don't emphasize the certainty that a lot of Christian traditions do. Yes, but yeah. Anyway, it's 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 
it's much more depending, in my experience, on your personality, your general personality setup, than the sort of beliefs you were brought up in. Although sometimes these beliefs can also instill fear. Like I was often called to um, people who had abortions for medical reasons, yeah, not frivolous abortions, but for medical reasons. And we would also cover them, the Muslims and everyone else. In fact, the, the you know the differences. Once when you're in the, such a dire situation, people don't really care that much which religion you belong to. They tend to be very accepting of you, even though they might have a different religion. And and these people were really really worried about God punishing them for doing this, like in terrible terrible fear. And what types of counsel would you give someone in a situation like that? Well, to build on on God's mercy, um, God's understanding, to see the reason for which they did it. And believe me, those cases were all cases where there was no medical hope for the child to survive. Yeah? Um, I, I was very ignorant about abortion until I actually worked in that field. And that's why I'm, uh, I mean, I, I, my instinct is to, to be totally against it based on my Christian beliefs. But then I saw all these individual cases that uh, showed me, you know, not, uh, people don't always do this for frivolous, frivolous reasons, yeah, um, but that these are very, very difficult decisions. And uh, very, It's easy very, from the outside to try to make a black or white decision uh, regarding yes. something like that without seeing the the intricacies and turmoil in some of those decisions uh exactly that's why i think a lot of the legislation around it uh is set up the wrong way and even from a protestant tradition um my professor uh, who i used to work for used to say that ultimately from a protestant point of view this is a decision of conscience yeah uh, on the part of the parents and the mother in particular, their individual conscience. And that, of course, goes back to Luther and ultimately Thomas Aquinas, yeah, that sometimes you have to even follow the erring conscience. Yeah? And that, that sort of concept of uh, freedom and liberty of conscience, which is th- that was, used to be the bedrock of Protestantism, has gone completely lost and, and, and is now um, uh, dissolved into some sort of uh, political fight, yeah? which, of course, you know, is particularly strong where you live. Yeah? <laughs> yeah. But I, I'd have to say one or two things to both sides on this, to the... the pro-choices and the pro-lifers that I can say for sure. But you, in that, in the medical field, seeing those difficult decisions that people had to make, you realize that it's not necessarily something that can legislatively be spelled out to a T that actually encompasses the reality of, you know, being in the world and having to make hard decisions. Yes, and they're also a reality of our medical abilities and possibilities nowadays. It's the same on the other side, by the way, with um, questions about euthanasia, etc. Palliative care, in the end, is nothing else than um, 
it's not euthanasia, but what you do instead of giving somebody a dose that will just end the pain, you will you will just closely follow the natural step the body takes towards death. Uh, uh, you know, kind of breathe down these symptoms neck with um, injections, whatever. It's there is a very thin line, fine line between palliative care and um, euthanasia. A lot of people don't realize that. And in fact, I, I mean, you can make the argument that you know, people should be able to, to um, autonomously end their lives. Um, uh, the state of Oregon in the US has a very balanced model, in my opinion, on this. But ultimately, if you have good palliative care available um, uh, where you live, they can, in the worst case, put you into the sort of, sort of palliative sedition uh, in which you are unconscious until death reaches you. So there is no, strictly speaking, no, no need from a medical point of view to do youth straight, uh, you know, outright euthanasia or um, medically assisted suicide. You can cover all this with um, uh, appropriate palliative care. But there are also other questions of um, autonomy around it, yeah. In the palliative care field and your work there, were there instances where people made the decision to pull the plug and let nature take its course? Because it sounds like some of these people were kept alive by current medical technology and things like that. Were there were there some of those decisions where people said, I'm in too much pain, let's just let yeah, let my body, you know, go to the ground. Well, yes, that's actually much easier than than people think. I mean, nobody can force you to keep on the machines, but in the end, it's usually doctors persuading the family and the patients to <laughs> keep going on. Yeah, and it, it, regretfully, I have to say that a lot of these uh, patient testaments are not even worth the paper that they're written on, because in the end, when the family is there, they make decisions, and the doctors and the family collude. Uh, in in that, and nobody will ever uh, prosecute that because um, the the actual patient is unconscious. But it is often the case that the patients themselves, even though they're just you know uh, struggling to to breathe, they still insist on on something being done uh, and, and 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 all that. But you know, switching off the machines that's that's an easy part. Uh, so, were you saying that oftentimes you think the patients? would be for letting nature take its course and unplugging the machines, but it's actually the families and the doctors who want to keep them on or the other way around? Uh, sometimes it is indeed the patients who insist on that. Even in cases where the doctors and the family uh, think it might be better to switch it off. I, I, I'm, I'm hesitant to mention this, but um, yes, I once had a case where where the, the situation was so, so dire and complicated that effectively um, the, the patient would have gone on and died an extremely painful death and the family then decided against it and the doctors and, um, yeah, very, very unfortunate um, case of a young man with a heart problem that could no longer be um, resolved. And you, you'd be surprised how often it is the constant giving of certain medical cocktails that actually keep somebody alive. 
and not actually a machine yeah that that artificially briefs for them it's literally the medication that's how far we've um, evolved in, in that field but these are terrible terrible situations or, or you know road accident victims are some very terrible cases where decisions have to be made on the spot and and family members are deeply traumatized by what's happening Stay tuned to the RZ Podcast to hear the second part of this conversation, where Andre and I speak about why he became a chaplain, the existence of God, as well as what he learned from being around so much death. <laughs>